Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. A lot going on in the world today uh, that we are going to get to as we go through the program today. The, uh, uh, and, and, and by the way, the, uh, <laughs> this, this is very strange, but this is what's going on. Our uh, call screen computer this morning decided uh, that it was going to do a Windows update. And so it's shut down. So I won't be able to take calls for a little bit here. We've got the phone lines locked out. I'll tell you when I unlock them. Uh, But, you know, life in the big city, right? Mitt Romney tweets, Robert Jeffress, this is the uh, right-wing bigot who Trump chose to do the invocation prayer this morning in Jerusalem at the, I don't know, inauguration or investment or whatever the right word is for what you do to open an embassy. Uh, uh, as the United States moved its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, He said, Robert Jeffress says you can't be saved by being a Jew, and Mormonism is a heresy from the pit of hell. And uh, Jeffress did say these things. He said them in 2011 at the uh, Values Voter Summit, which is a a notorious place where white right-wing bigots get together. And uh, Jeffress responded with his own tweet. He says, salvation is through Christ alone. Right. But there's a, there's a larger issue here and, and a larger picture of what's going on. Uh, a few weeks ago, 21st of March, was uh, a month and a half ago, was the uh, anniversary of the 1960 Sharpeville Massacre. The Sharpeville Massacre, the, in, in, in South Africa, there were, there were towns and communities where if you were black or colored or you know, a, any of the various categories other than white, you could not leave. You had to stay in those towns. If you did leave, you had to have a pass. You had to have a permit to leave. And, you know, in some cases, even to go shopping and things like that. And uh, it was just, you know, this, this apartheid was just intolerable to the black South Africans. And so on 20, 21 March 1960, a group uh, formed in front of the uh, police station in the uh, Transvaal is a state in South Africa. The Sharpeville is the town in the Transvaal, or in Transvaal. And a crowd of five to 7,000 people, which ultimately grew to as many as 20,000, were protesting the fact that they had to use these passes, the pass laws, to get out of Sharpeville because they were locked in because of the apartheid laws. And the police opened fire on them, and they killed 69 people, including, and, and they injured 289, they shot, and, but didn't kill fatally, 289 people, including 29 children. Today in South Africa, March 21st, is celebrated as a public holiday to honor both human rights and the memory of those people who were killed. Now, not only did the local police open fire, but the government of South Africa brought in fire. They had uh, four Saracen armored personnel car- carriers, they had police sharpshooters. Uh, they were using Sten submachine guns and Lee Enfield rifles. The Sharpeville people were armed with nothing more than rocks and slingshots. And the government of South Africa ran F-86 Sabre jets and Harvard trainers a few hundred feet over the ground. Now, they did not drop bombs or ordnance, but they just, you know, they were trying to scatter the crowd. Now, this was considered, you know, by the world. The world was horrified by this. I mean, just just shocked by this. 
And in fact, the United Nations passed a resolution condemning it. Uh, the, on the 30th of March, South Africa as a nation declared a state of emergency. They, they rounded up 18,000 people. And this was really a turning point. This was the thing that radicalized Nelson Mandela. Prior, prior to Sharpeville, Nelson Mandela had been saying, we can work things out peacefully. But Sharpeville said basically to black South Africans, this government has no interest in peace with you. This government simply wants to keep you in, a, in, in, in prison, basically, in this apartheid state. And uh, this also led to the banning of the African National Council, uh, Congress, the, the political party that Mandela was part of, and, and, and led to Mandela's imprisonment. Here in the United States, while politicians condemned it, including Jack Kennedy, the Mississippi House of Representatives, the Republicans loved it, or at least the Southern, actually it would have been the Southern Democrats in 1960, the, uh, shall we say the conservatives, the Mississippi House of Representatives voted a resolution supporting the South African government, quote, for its steadfast policy of segregation and staunch adherence to their traditions in the face of overwhelming external agitation. Now, I tell you about the Sharpeville massacre uh, because it was a major turning point in the history of South Africa that ultimately led to peace in South Africa, led to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, led to, uh, you know, many years later, and this was in 1960, led to Nelson Mandela becoming ultimately the president of South Africa. Now, I doubt that anybody can imagine, and I can't either, frankly, that someday a Palestinian from Gaza will end up the president of Israel. But ending apartheid might be a really good idea. Today, Israeli troops killed dozens of Palestinians. Actually, the death toll is now over 41 as protests as U.S. Embassy opens in Jerusalem. Now, what happened with the U.S. Embassy is that back in 1999, here in the United States, Congress passed a legislation, and I believe Bill Clinton signed it, saying that the U.S. would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I mean, you know, that's where their government is. That's where their parliament is, the Knesset. Uh, it's where the prime minister's and president's homes are. But most of the rest of the governments of the world, see, the, the, there is not a single European country that is supporting us and that's moving their embassy to Israel, for example. Most of the governments of the world maintain their embassies in Tel Aviv, and the legislation in 1999 establishing you know, the U.S. policy as Jerusalem being the capital has this uh, six-month waiver in it, which says you know, the president doesn't have to do this, and every six months he can say, I'm not going to do it for another six months. And every president since Bill Clinton has been using that waiver as leverage to, to the, on the Israelis to say, work something out with the Palestinians. And when you work something out, and, and up until recently, it's, the two-state solution has been the thing that has been held as the highest value, the, the, the most likely to succeed thing. Until you have a two-state solution, we're not going to actually move our embassy. And when, when you do have a two-state solution, Israel, because the big thing that you want is the United States and ultimately the European countries and the rest of the developed world to acknowledge that Jerusalem is your capital. When you've worked something out with the Palestinians, we'd be glad to do that. So Trump comes along and says, you know, I don't care about policy. Sheldon Adelson is going to give $30 million to the Republican Party. And what he wants is for us to move the capital to Jerusalem. Sheldon Adelson, who uh, made $670 million in his tax break, in the GOP tax scam, they give the, the, our government is giving Sheldon Adelson $670 million. He is kicking back $30 million of it to the Republican Party. And he's in Israel right now for the opening of the embassy. This, this is, uh, you know, pretty strange stuff. It's like we are ignoring years and years and years of history. We're ignoring what's going on. Arthur, how, how are we doing on the, uh, on the updates? I'm, I, 18%. Okay, I'm going to uh, just unlock the lines here. And uh, I'll take your calls unscreened after the break. So when you call, you won't, uh, you won't, you know, you won't be talking to a call screener. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I think this should be interesting. So... Uh, <clears throat> Anyhow, 
I also want to talk, and I'm, in fact, I'm going to get to, into in five minutes, uh, an issue completely unrelated to Israel. But, uh, you know, with Trump, it's pretty strange. Brian Krasenstein, by the way, tweeting, I'm a supporter of Israel. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I agree with this sentiment. I'm a supporter of Israel. I have family in Israel. I support their right to exist as a nation. I do not support snipers shooting and killing protesters in Gaza. Two other stories I wanted to bring to your attention today that I think are are really important and worthy of conversation. And uh, the first is... And, and then I'll be picking up your calls at the bo- after the bottom of the hour. Well, maybe we'll have some time for some in this segment. But I, I want to I go through this in, in some detail. The, the administration, the Trump administration, has been, uh, Donald Trump and his acolytes, have been basically saying that, that everything that they're doing is to, uh, to protect American jobs. Right? Uh, you know, all this, in terms of trade that uh, all of the, you know, taking on China. And this is, by the way, this, I believe, is the main reason why Trump is rising in the opinion polls. And he is. He's not, uh, you know, apparently hasn't risen as much as Rasmussen says, uh, the polls that he quotes, all the other polls say, well, you know, but he's still rising in the polls. And I think one of the major, major reasons is that Americans think that Donald Trump is out there fighting for them with regard to international trade. And Robert Lighthizer, who has been on this program, is and is his major trade advisor. His, I agree with Lighthizer, which means that you know I, I agree with what Trump is doing by and large in terms of trade policy, or at least trying to repair trade policy. I, I you know I've been preaching this for decades, as have most Democrats. Donald Trump. You'll you'll notice that the strongest opposition to Donald Trump's trade policies is not coming from the Democratic Party. It's coming from Republicans. Republicans for years. Richard Nixon was the guy who opened China to trade. We had a ban on commerce with China in 1972. It was against the law for American companies to do business with China. And Richard Nixon, uh, you know, apparently at the behest of, and there are stories that he was, you know, campaign contributions or bribes or who knows what or friends of B.B. Rebozo, but apparently on behalf of Pepsi-Cola Corporation uh, or some other corporate entity or other corporate entities. Richard Nixon went to China and said, hey, you guys want to do business with us? Let's make a deal. And as as a result of that, you know, over time, we have seen now China become the second largest economy in the world. So we kind of built China. We helped build China. You know, Walmart helped build China in a huge way. Our companies in the United States deciding to move their jobs overseas because of foreign trade policies that were started by Nixon, amplified by Reagan, put on steroids in the, uh, you know, during the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administrations. All of these administrations have supported basically, you know, they've, they've tried to get China to behave better. Hey, please stop stealing our intellectual property. Please stop. You know, uh, please allow our American car manufacturers to sell cars in China and things like that. But the Chinese said, no, we're not going to do that. And one of their companies, ZTE, was facing over a billion dollars in fines. This is a cell phone manufacturer. They make some of the cheap phones that you buy in the United States, the little flip phones and burner phones and stuff. So you've probably not heard of their name because they don't sell them under their own brand name. But but, uh, ZTE is the company. And... The core, one of the core elements for cell phones, and I, I believe it's the chip that makes the cell phone happen, but whatever, one of the core elements for cell phones is made in the United States. And ZTE wants to sell in the United States. And ZTE is also selling uh, phones and doing business with both North Korea and Iran, which are both violations of U.S. sanctions. So the Commerce Department said, uh, you know, ZTE can't do business with the United States. ZTE complained to the president of China. The president of China called Donald Trump. Donald Trump tweeted, too many jobs lost in China. Commerce Department has been instructed to get it done. To, in other words, to let ZTE do whatever they want. So much for being tough on China, right? Now, odds are that Trump is doing this, and, and if this is the case, I'm not sure you know, we should absolutely condemn him for this hypocrisy. Odds are that he's doing this because he, wants, he knows that you know, the North Korea deal is not going to happen without the support of China. So he's trying to play nice with China. 
And this is part of the equation that previous presidents had about, you know, okay, do we want to go after China on trade or do we play nice with them? But the bottom line is that, you know, Trump's whole thing about, you know, made in America. See, if Trump really believed in made in America, when ZTE, a company in China that has 75,000 employees and does business in more than 160 countries, when, when, when they said we are suspending operations because the American market is such a big part of our business and we need parts of America that we can't do business without America. When they said that, Trump should have said, great. We would be glad to build factories in the United States. We don't need ZTE. We'll get a good American company to build cell phones in the United States, the cheap flip phones and stuff. You know, the burner phones, the disposable phones. We can do that. We have technology. We have educated people. We got all kinds of cool stuff. But Trump didn't say that. Trump said, okay, we're going to protect 75,000 jobs in China. Meanwhile, you'll recall that the United States has a $2.5 trillion deficit in, in, uh, in infrastructure. Mike Pompeo over the weekend said that the United States, quote, could help build out the energy grid that needs enormous amounts of electricity in North Korea. Americans could also help, he said, with investment in infrastructure and agriculture to help feed the North Korean people. Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, said basically rebuilding the infrastructure of North Korea would, quote, be the best money we ever spent. So let's, let me get this right. We don't have enough money to rebuild the infrastructure of the United States, but we do have enough money to rebuild the infrastructure of North Korea. We, we don't have, we have a massive unemployment problem in the United States, particularly in our inner cities. And the Republican response to that has not been to, to you know, do, change our trade laws so the jobs come back to Detroit, but instead to say, you know, if you're going to be on Medicaid, you've got to have a job, even though there are no jobs. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. Unless, of course, you live in the white rural areas of Michigan, in which case, no problem. You don't have to, you don't have to work to get Medicaid. No problem if you're white. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Speaking the truth, some multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know about. And I'm going to have to ask you to give us our, your name and city when I put you on the air. I, uh, Arthur went through and was just, you know, collecting topics. So I know that uh, this caller from uh, the 253 area code is calling about Chinese phones. But what's your name and where are you calling from? I'm Dave in Federal Way. Oh, okay. Talk Dave, to- what's on your mind? Hey, I just wanted to throw this out here, Tom. Um, you know, this, this thing with ZTE, it came up once before when Suzette Kent was nominated to be the uh, chief information officer for the for uh, Donald Trump and um, there is another aspect to this the ZTE that that concerns me I'm thinking that like what they're saying is that ZTE uh, could be you know China Beijing could use it to spy on Americans that's what they're saying in the mainstream media well yeah there's there's but, two issues one is spying on Americans and the other is that they're appropriating American technology yes now um, you know when I think this might have to do with the 5g network also Hmm. All right, in uh, in America, yeah. a, a China. In in what well, this has to do with Suzette Kent is she um, used to work for Accenture, and um, she is really a bank and capital person. She's not really an IT type person, hmm. and she I believe that maybe she convinced Trump that to get a five G network in America, the Chinese company like ZTE could do it you know much cheaper and meet contract requirements. And I think one of the contract requirements will be that they will leave um, a mechanism for the United States to spy on United States citizens. Yeah, but they could, you know, if that was the goal of the Trump administration, they could do that with an American manufacturer just as easily. I mean, you know, look at when, you know, what Ed Snowden outed, you know, it was, it was AT&T who was feeding, feeding uh, information to the NSA uh, illegally and inappropriately. So, you know, the, the thing that just baffles me is this guy who, who has walked around saying, you know, well, we, we, you know, when China competed with us, we had factories shut down, we had businesses shut down in the United States, we had Americans thrown out of work, uh, you know, and uh, we're going to fix that. And then China comes along and says, you know, hey, your trade sanctions are causing one of our companies to have to lay off 75,000 people. And Trump goes, oh, we can't have that, 75,000 people losing their jobs in China. And the whole point was those could be replaced with jobs in America. That's what happens if you're actually going to have a trade policy, and thank you, Dave, for the call, if you're actually going to have a trade policy that puts America first, if you're actually going to have a trade policy that supports American manufacturing, guess what? You're going to be 
taking jobs from China. And I don't what I don't understand, uh, well, maybe I do. You know, uh, if if Trump was actually honest about what he's doing, he would be out there saying or if he was actually consistent, I guess is the right word. He'd be out there saying, hey, you know, our trade policies are working. We just took down a Chinese company and uh, and he would be talking. He'd be going to the telecom industry and saying, hey, are there any up and coming American companies who'd like to get into the cheap cell phone business? Let's, you know, let them have let them at it. There is a big market opportunity here. Go for it, guys. But no, he's like, oh, you know, President Xi called me and he's my friend and he comes to my golf course, you know. And so I just, you know, I need to make sure that he's happy. And as I said, I mean, you know, this might be part of the North Korea negotiations and maybe he's going to reverse himself in a few weeks. But I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, the caller in the 563 area code, I don't have your name or, or city, just uh, that you wanted to talk about Israel. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, Tom. Bruce in Clinton, Iowa. Hey, Bruce. What's on your again. mind? Hey, uh, I, yeah, I did want to talk about moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, concern that I've gotten, I, I guess I haven't heard this addressed a lot. Uh, you know, with all the talk that Hillary Clinton went through for a few years about Benghazi, I'm a bit concerned that this could be an increase uh, in possible, how do I say, terrorism, safety concerns that our citizens over in Israel and the Middle East in general might have to go through for quite a while by moving uh, moving our embassy. Well, this is this is why I was drawing the parallel to the Sharpeville massacre. I think that, and, and, and by the way, the, the other thing I was going to mention and I forgot is that tomorrow is the 70th, 70th anniversary of the Nakba. The Nakba is the, is the annexation of, you know, kicking the Palestinians out of what is now Israel so that Israel could exist. And this is commemorated by the Palestinians as a, you know, as a, as a tragedy. And for Netanyahu to ask Trump to open the embassy, actually today was the day right, the 14th of May. Today was the day that, that was the, the, uh, the end of it. And, and in fact, I've got an article about it here someplace. Uh, yeah, here it is. In, in London today, they're having a, a protest in, in London. Hundreds of people rallied in front of the Israeli embassy in London uh, to, to protest the 70th anniversary of Israel's establishment, an event Arabs refer to as the Nakba or the catastrophe. Uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine rose considerably during the British Mandate period, which lasted from 1922 to May 14th, 1948. Now, it's going to be celebrated in Israel tomorrow, I believe, or celebrated, maybe the wrong word, uh, because then, you know, it ended today and tomorrow was the day that, you know, everything changed. Some 700,000 Palestinians fled their homes or were forcibly expelled by invading Jewish forces, while hundreds of Palestinian villages and cities were razed to the ground. So... By, by Netanyahu getting Trump or Netanyahu and Shelley, Shelley Adelson getting Trump to do this on this day, today, it is not just the inflammatory stuff and the flying in the face of our allies in, in Europe and flying in the face of our Arab allies in the Middle East. Uh, not, you know, the Chinese don't care, but, you know, not only is this, uh, you know, a slap in the face in that regard, but it is also... Uh, it, it, it's also a, an incitement to the Palestinians. It's like, it, it's like saying, yeah, yeah, we, you know, you know, so what, you know, it's our 70th birthday, screw you. And, and, you know, we don't have to negotiate with you. We don't have to do anything. And, and the reason I, I brought up the parallel to the Sharpeville massacre is that that was pretty much how the government of South Africa was acting toward the people that they held in enslavement or in, in apartheid, shall we say. And, uh, and, 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 and ultimately, it didn't work for them, ultimately, and, 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 and the failure of it over time led to peace, which was a good thing. So, it, you know, sometimes things have to, have to hit bottom or burst out or whatever before they can be resolved. Um, certainly that was the case here in the United States with protests against the Vietnam War back in the 70s. Um, you know, certainly that was the case with, uh, you know, overcoming the absolute rigid control of capitalists in the United States over our government in 1929. Uh, you know, that led to the, the, Ro- the Roosevelt Revolution, um, you know, and hopefully that that's what, you know, what will come out of this, out of the out of the outrage of Israeli snipers shooting children in, in Gaza uh, will be as some sort of reconciliation, some sort of repair of all this. But, uh, you know, but, time will tell. Yeah. Well, so what you're saying is, in effect, Trump is playing the role of Netanyahu's useful idiot. 
Yeah. By, by doing this. Yeah, and 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 the role, or, and 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 you know, if you want to draw a parallel, Netanyahu's playing the role of de Klerk. Um, I think that that's a pretty stark and harsh analogy. But in the Sharpeville massacre, fewer people died than died in Gaza today, mm-hmm. and fewer people were injured. And and you know, it was not even a hundred kids. I, I believe in 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 Gaza now, four hundred children have been injured. Um, so I mean, this is this is serious stuff. So, uh, Dave, thank you. Uh, what was your name again? It was uh, Bruce. In Bruce. Island. That's right. Bruce. Bruce, thanks so much for the call. Great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Uh, we've got another caller here who wants to talk about Israel uh, in the 937 area code. Your name and city? Uh, this is Kim Haru, and uh, I'm in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. What's up? Uh, well, um, uh, in December of this year, I visited South Africa, and um, one of the local newspapers uh, reporters uh, when I was reading the paper uh, this was as soon as I got there well that same Sunday um, he said that the uh, whites in South Africa are doing better now under uh, democracy than they were under apartheid well and, and certainly they don't live in the in the bizarre uh, fear slash uh, shame that they did during the apartheid regime they weren't shamed, but they were in fear. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Um, I, think I'll, I think a lot uh, of whites are probably shamed as well, just, just as there are a lot of Israelis who don't agree with what Netanyahu is doing, you know, live fire on, on children. Um, okay, well, we're not going to um, disagree on that. I will say that when, when I read that, um, uh, my thought was, how in the hell could this, this be? So I... Um, the, the whole 12, 13 days that I was in there, I looked for that to see whether that was actually true or whether this guy was just saying things in order to, um, to get some attention. And I found that exactly to be true. Um, so do you the, think that the whites in South Africa now are doing better at the expense of the blacks, or are they simply doing better because the entire country is doing better? The blacks are not doing significantly better. Yeah. They are doing better because they don't have to spend the kind of money that they were spending on their military. Yeah. Um, okay, but um, I, we, we went and we saw, like, huge areas of um, uh, basically little shacks, maybe 10 by 30, mm-hmm. where whole families were living in there. And we, every city that we visited... Um, there were these places. I asked our driver, because um, we had a driver to take us to different places, and I asked our driver to um, show me the places where the whites are living like this. Mm. And he, he drove us to a place, and he said he would do that. He drove us to a place, basically, that looked like a, um, um, uh, um, just a regular um, living class, I, I mean, working class American neighborhood. Mm. That's what he showed us. And this is so, where the poor whites were, in quotes. This is where the poor whites were. Right. And they were in houses that were far and away better yeah. than anything that the poor blacks Well, just, just like in the United States, what you're seeing here is generations of uh, basically what, you, what uh, anthropologists refer to as social capital, although it also includes money capital, um, generations of, of social and, and financial capital having been accumulated by white people uh, at, at the same time that they were being denied to black people. And so now you've, you know, I mean, we're what, you know, 30, 40 years into, I, I don't know how long it's been this since the end of apartheid in South Africa, but we're, we're a generation or two uh, at the very most into people of color in, in South Africa having access to the things that white people have had access to for several hundred years there. And but so it's going to take... But they don't. Um, hello? Yeah, no, I, by, by social capital, I'm talking about things like, you know, good, good schools, the ability of, of their parents to get a job, the, the, the you know, so the, the, the ability of uh, the, having educated parents so that you, you grow up with a larger vocabulary and, and become more functional in the, in the world, in the workplace, all those kind of things. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, I got you there. But what is, what is actually happening is um, uh, during apartheid, the, the whites owned 
90% of the land in South Africa. Right. Right now, as we speak, they own 85% of the land. Yeah. And so the blacks are pushed into these little areas where they really can't support themselves. Yeah. No, I, I got that. Uh, but if you look at the United States right now, 83% of, of Trump's tax cut went to the top 1%. The top 1% has got to be at least 99% white. Oh, no, I, right. I understand that. And But, but um, what, what I'm saying is that um, now in, in South Africa, uh, the blacks typically are nearly as bad off as they were under yeah. apartheid. That's very unfortunate. I got to run. Thanks for the call, though. Uh, it's fascinating. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls right after this. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs. And if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X-Chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X-Chair. And the X-Chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the X-Chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is Thomas Schatz, Thomas A. Schatz. He is the president of Citizens Against Government Waste, CAGW, and its lobbying affiliate, the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste. This is a conservative organization, CAGW, CCAGW.org is the website. You can tweet him at Thomas or Tom, T-O-M, Schatz, S-C-H-A-T-Z, C-A-G-W. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be on. Uh, Glad to have you. I got an email from you uh, that that was part of a fundraiser that says, I have a shocking fact for you. Every American household, including yours, is paying a hidden tax that amounts to nearly $15,000 annually which, of course, is more than most Americans pay in taxes. Uh, According to our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, another conservative think tank, uh, the cost of complying with federal regulations hit $1.9 trillion, or nearly $15,000 per household last year. That's more than the federal government collected in individual and corporate income taxes combined. It it, it seems to me like there's a huge logical fallacy here, Tom. Uh, You are are asserting that, that, uh, you know, because there's an expense to something, that somehow that is an expense to all American citizens. You know, for example, I start a corporation. I have to pay an incorporation fee. Should we start calling that a tax for everybody? Uh, you know, I, I have to, because the U.S. tax law, do, you know, doesn't do what, for example, most northern European countries do, which is they actually calculate your taxes for you. In most of these countries, you don't have the equivalent of H&R Block. You don't have this multi-billion dollar industry of tax preparers. And, and we do that because the tax preparers lobby our Congress to keep that in place. So, you know, I, but I wouldn't call that a tax on everybody. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just wrong. But, but you're going after regulations here that, by and large, are protecting Americans from, from greed, from the excesses of capitalism, and frankly, protecting capitalists from the excesses of capitalism. I don't think that there's anybody in business who doesn't want regulation that, that, does, that prevents uh, you know, other businesses from, from playing unfairly on the playing field of business. I don't get what you're, what you're ranting about here. Well, first of all, the size of the federal regulations uh, are so huge, you can't possibly follow all of them and comply with all of them. You've got overlapping 
federal, state, local regulations, making it very difficult for businesses to even go into business. Then why are businesses, you know, why, why, is, why, why are businesses enjoying more prosperity right now, higher profits, lower taxes than, than they have in, you know, certainly in my entire lifetime? Well, they're doing it in spite of all the obstacles to get into business. You I would say they're doing it because of it. At, well, I, <laughs> I, look, I, I, mean, I, I, have, I have lots for of... for GMO regulations, for example. Oh. Oh. There, there are a lot of people that try to get into business, find themselves, you know, filling out forms, blocking uh, their access. Uh, look, I've tried to start small businesses here in Washington, D.C. It's extremely difficult. I started a small business you know in Washington, D.C. Two, two years ago. I called LegalZoom. They did it for me for 400 bucks. It took one day. The kinds of regulations that they're talking about here are regulations that simply add to the cost of doing business and also increase costs to people that get involved in those businesses. Well, of course they so do. When you say things are less expensive, we've got lower taxes, they could be even less expensive than they are now and more available if these he, regulations here's my are concern, not so Tom. large. But uh, you're, you're, I'm here's sorry, a, I'm, all they're talking about is the cost of the regulations. Here's, here's my concern, Tom. What? And that people don't understand how regulations affect them and how they affect their ability to, to do business. I'm a businessman, Tom. I have been running businesses, uh, you know, in, including multiple multi-million dollar companies uh, for 40, 45 years. And I've been complying with regulations all that time. I ran a tea company. We were heavily regulated. I've run two ad agencies. We were lightly regulated. I ran a travel agency. I, own, I owned all these businesses, owned them and sold them. I owned a travel agency. Uh, you know, when we sold it, we were doing $6 million a year in business. And, you know, we were heavily regulated. I welcomed those regulations. They helped us define exactly how we do business. The business I have now is this radio show. I, my concern is that by, by talking about regulation in general, which is, you know, what many of the organizations that are funded by people like the Koch brothers or companies like ExxonMobil, what they really are saying is, you know, let's have an attack broadly on regulation because regulation makes Coke industries less profitable. They'd really prefer, I, I don't want to pick specifically on Coke industries, let's say the fossil fuel industry in general. You know, for example, there was a regulation that said that, that coal mines cannot dump their waste in rivers because it poisons people to get their water from rivers downstream, kills wildlife, renders the river, you know, ruins the, the ecosystem, et cetera. That was one of the first regulations that the Trump administration overturned. So now you've got people down, down river, all, you know, all through the coal country who are being poisoned by their water. How is that a good thing? Well, you can go through a lot of different regulations. So how is that a good thing? You can find the, pro the problem is that you don't know, in most cases, whether or not the rules benefits justify its costs. Because a lot of the no, this was passed in the 1990s. Newt Gingrich got legislation passed that requires a cost-benefit analysis on all regulations. Oh, but they don't do them in many cases. No, they, they also have beyond they're required the by law to do them. They have what's called regulatory guidance, where they don't go through the Administrative Procedure Act. They simply add these guidances. Then sue them. Regulations. Then challenge them. Uh, well, I, well, those those are things that this Congress is trying to change because when you no, have what this Congress is trying to do is suck up to the big polluters, you to the pharmaceutical a, companies, to the chemical you know, companies, to the oil companies, to I the coal companies. This? All these guys care about are the friggin' big polluters. And I'm surprised that you're in bed with these people, Tom. Well, I think you're making a lot of assumptions about the organization. Uh, first of all, we're talking about CEI's report that identifies the number and cost of regulations as to whether or not they're effective is a whole different story. The problem is that Congress doesn't exercise the oversight necessary to determine what the impact is of these regulations on the government. So we would like them to have the capability of reviewing what's called major regulations so that they can determine whether or not they should go into effect. Because a lot of the regulations that have been promulgated, particularly uh, under President Obama, there was no oversight. There was no accountability. And many of these regulations go into effect without anyone understanding how they're going to work. Even when they're intended to do something good, nobody knows whether or not they're effective. So we have already started back on the road to poisoning our rivers. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, when Lake Erie was dead. And, you know, doing away with regulations will take us back to that time. Is that the kind of America you want to live in? Uh, I know. If you're talking, I'm, honestly, I'm not even familiar with the regulation you're talking about. Um, but it's, you know, it's a coal mining regulation. It's not just coal. Uh, I'm sure there coal, are other chemicals. I mean, basically the people who hate regulations are, are the big polluting industries. And, they, and the regulations that they love 
are the ones that give them patent protection, the ones that give them copyright protection, the, the ones that give them trade secret protection. I mean, there's all kinds of regulations and laws, but you know, largely these are regulations. The companies love, want, lobby for, beg for. Uh, the ones that they hate are the ones that say that you can't poison people. I can't think of a single regulation that I'm operating under that I think is outrageous. And I, it, like I said, I've been in business for 45 years. I, I don't get it. So, so, so you're making an assumption that everything the government does is positive and good for the country? No, what I'm saying is that when, when the government does something that is destructive to the country, people speak out. For example, you've got Ajit Pai right now in for, putting in place a whole new set of regulations right, for the, for the Internet. He's taking the Internet out of uh, Title II, which was arguably very regulatory, very light. It was just one you know, basic thing. Uh, you know, and, and putting it into a whole set of very complex rules that will work to the benefit of AT&T, will work to the benefit of Verizon, that will work to the benefit of Comcast, and that will screw any little company that wants to try to start an Internet service provider. And these, well, first, this, okay, these new regulations so are loved and embraced by this administration. Uh, uh, and and what, does, what does that uh, regulation that Tom Wheeler put into effect not cover? It doesn't cover Facebook, it doesn't cover Google, it doesn't cover Twitter. That's because well, they're not they Internet like service providers. Well, what, what is, so what role does the, do the ISPs play that's so much more important than Google or Facebook where there are privacy issues? You can't visit Google or Facebook by... without having an Internet service provider in the middle. And now with the death of net neutrality, so, so control, my Internet service provider gets to see everything I do on Facebook and Twitter. So I've lost my privacy twice, Tom. What happened to you between 1996 and 2015 on the Internet that you were complaining about? Because in 2015, they changed the rules to Title II. Right. They're now back to where they were between 1996 and 2015. Well, what I was so complaining what, about what, was what Comcast regularly was throttling me if I tried to use a, a, a VPN so that Comcast didn't see all my traffic, for example. I mean, that was happening regularly. We, we, I transfer large video files all the time here at this show because we do this as simulcast as television. And if I'm at home and I need to get a segment and edit it or whatever, I got to pull down a you know, five gigabyte or a 20 gigabyte file off the internet. And if I try and do that through a VPN, through a virtual private network, so that Comcast can't see what I'm doing, even though I'm paying for 100 MIPS of download on a business system with, with Comcast, they would throttle me. They'd throttle you me do, down to five can you do it? And can you do it right now? No. They've started throttling again. Were you able to do it in 2015 and 16? Yes. <laughs> well, that's the only example I've ever heard, because I've never, I've never heard anybody complain about it. And by the way, if somebody has a complaint, there's a place to go. Well, that's my point, is, is that, FBC, you know, if you, you don't like a specific regulation, you can do something about it. Well, Tom, Tom, anyhow, it's a, your organiza the organization is uh, Citizens Against Government Waste, C-A-G-W, C-C-A-G-W.org is the website. Uh, Tom Schatz, S-C-H-A-T-Z-C-A-G-W is the Twitter handle. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Sure, thank you. Good talking with you. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the third hour of our program. Our old friend Bill Press has a new book out. It's uh, From the Left is the title. And uh, uh, Bernie Sanders blurb for it. The tale of an engaged and often outraged citizen who loves his country and wants to see it move forward in a progressive direction. Uh, nice blurb. Very nice blurb. Uh, Bill, welcome, to the, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Great. You know what? We we miss you in Washington, man. Well, yeah, I got to get back there. I've got to get back there. I uh, well, that's a whole other discussion. But we're having a great time. No, here I know. In, we're having a great time well, here in Portland. I just have a. I just got a grandson, and uh, oh, I'm going to have for you. two granddaughters coming this uh, August, and we're you know our kids oh. are all here, and we're just having a wonderful time. Oh. So well, that's that's the best best view in Louise, and now I know why you're in Portland. That you know we love Portland too. So I yeah. can't. Uh, well, you need to come visit. Come visit. We'll do a gig together here. You know, it's like there's there's so much that could be done. Anyhow, I, 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 I want to. Yeah. I have a question for you, Bill. You yeah. you you do something that I, I don't do well and you do it brilliantly, which is essentially punditry. You know, I mean, you know, I my my whole thing is wonky issue stuff. But but you have the ability to. And, and I think it's you were the head of the Democratic Party in California, weren't you? I was for three years. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's because you've kind of been inside the sausage machine and I have not. And you, you've been watching this stuff for years and years, and you know a lot of the players, and you know a lot of them you know, personally, that, that you, can, you can look at 
political situations and, and, and derive understandings from them that baffle many of the rest of us. We did a poll on this program last week. And uh-huh. uh, what I did was we, I didn't even have Arthur screen the calls. We just, uh, you know, I, uh, my, my call screen software shows uh, area codes. So we had people call in. We've got 12 lines. We had people call in. And when, they, when the call showed up, I would just put them on the air and I'd say, area code 313, you're on the air. And you have 10 seconds to tell us who you would like to see as the nominee of the Democratic Party in 2020. Who's going to be, who, wow. would, who would you like yeah. to have? Okay. And we did that for 15 minutes and we got about 50 votes. And, you know, so it was real rapid fire, people coming through. You could, it's up on YouTube. You can see it. And uh, here's how it broke out. And I would love to get your thoughts on, A, how it broke out. And I realize that these numbers are probably skewed by the fact that Bernie was on this program for 11 years. Um, yeah. But number one, how, your, your thoughts on these numbers. And number two, your thoughts on how the Democratic race for president actually is going to shake out as time goes on and as we approach 2020. And I realize that there's a couple of events that are going to uh, change that dynamic. For example, Elizabeth Warren is up for re-election yeah. in, in Massachusetts in 2018. So she's not going to do anything that might look like she's running for president until after she secures that seat, um, mm-hmm. if she's running for president. But anyhow, here's how the vote broke out. Uh, Bernie got 28 votes. Elizabeth Warren got 13 votes. Kamala Harris got six votes. Joe Biden got four. Cory Booker, three. Rob Reich, Robert Reich, two. Ted Lieu, two. Adam Schiff, two. Sherrod Brown, two. Eric Holder, two. And one each for Michelle Obama, Julian Castro, Maxine Waters, Mark Pocan, Claire McCaskill, Keith Ellison, Ro Khanna, Russ Feingold, John Hickenlooper, and Hillary Clinton. So that was the, and, and I think that Hillary got so few votes, not because people wouldn't vote for her if she was running for president, but because she's made it fairly clear she's not going to be running in 2020. Um, so, right. so that was the vote. Um, your thoughts? Quick question. Quick question. Quick question first. I, I missed your, Joe Biden was four, as I recall, right? And it was yes. Six. Uh, Biden was four. Cory Booker was three. Okay. Those are the top uh, five. Bernie, Elizabeth, Kamala, Joe, and Cory. Those are the top five. That was it. Yeah, that was it. Right. Okay. Um, well, first of all, <laughs> uh, my first thought is it's too early to talk 2020, uh, number one, but we are. Uh, number, the number two, that list, I think, reflects what the 2020 race among the Democrats is all about. I mean, I, I could have kid with friends that... Republicans last time had to have a, a, a varsity and a JV debate, remember? Mm-hmm. So I think the Democrats this time might have, a, have to have a varsity, a JV, and a middle school debate or something. Right? Yeah. Because there, there, there could be so a scratch Kennedy. team. <laughs> but I also think it shows Bernie's strength coming out of 20, 2016. Now, listen, your audience and my audience are going to skew pro Bernie, right? Because we're Bernie bros, and Bernie was on your show a lot more than mine, but he was my guest thought. And, Mm. Uh, I was a big supporter of his. Um, Although, but, uh, to, you know, let's let's qualify this, Bill. Both of yeah. us, when Bernie lost the primary, both of us became enthusiastic and outspoken supporters of Hillary Clinton. Thank you. Totally, totally. And by the way, so did he, which I yes. keep reminding you. And in fact, right. of all the politicians in America who supported uh, Hillary Clinton, only Tim Kaine visited more cities and spoke to more people on behalf of Hillary Clinton than Bernie. And in fact, it may yeah. be that Bernie spoke to actually more people because he drew larger crowds. Absolutely. And every time somebody says, oh, you know, well, Bernie, but, but Hillary lost because Bernie didn't help. And I say, no, that's absolutely BS. And I know, you know, you know, as well as I, Bernie's message was very, very clear. You have to vote and you cannot possibly vote for Donald Trump. You have to vote for Hillary Clinton. Yes. It was not, it was, her, it was her, not her, ambiguous. Uh, so, <laughs> right. No, yes. and nothing, nothing he says is right. Right. Uh, so I think this sort of, I guess, bottom line, I think this reflects reality. Number one, there are a lot, a lot of very qualified, top-notch Democratic candidates, unlike on the Republican side. And two, I think Bernie and Joe Biden do have the edge, uh, both because of their experience and because uh, they're they're progressive and people are looking for somebody uh, left of center. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Joe is not as far left as Bernie is, but I'll give him left of center. Joe was one of the, along with Debbie Stabenow, a couple of the principal authors and, and supporters of the 2005 bankruptcy reform, which made Elizabeth Warren crazy at the time and that made it uh, impossible for students to discharge their debt. That seems to me like the largest cloud that's hanging over them. Has he repudiated that? Not that I know of. No, yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it is unfortunate. I mean, and. Um, you know, um, I thought, by the way, I warned Bernie in 2016, sometime during the campaign. I said, Bernie, you better watch out for Joe Biden. He said, what do you mean? I said, look, the better you do, the bigger crowds you draw, 
the more you point out how vulnerable Hillary is, this is during the primary, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I think you may, may be sending Joe Biden a message. Hillary is vulnerable. Get in here. Uh, and I expected him to. Oh, he was. That day. I mean, yeah. when Biden saw how 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 uh, Bernie was doing, Biden started seriously running, and Absolutely. and his son's death by by brain cancer is the, in my opinion, is the only thing that blew that up. And and I've spoken with several people who are close to him who have said basically the same thing. And you know, there was another factor too. Uh, Obama, Obama really encouraged him not to run. That's right. I mean, there's no doubt. Obama yeah. was so. But he he could have defied really... Obama, and he and Obama would have supported him even if he defied him. I believe. If he, he won the primary, but Obama, Obama put the pressure on, just like he put the pressure on Tom Perez to run for DNC chair. You yep. know, Obama was clearly not in Bernie's camp. Obama was, I mean, he was clearly taking sides in the primary, even though they denied it. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, and he helped set Hillary up for it by making her secretary of state, although she was a great secretary of state. I, I don't think that he that was. was entirely a political calculation, but that was obviously a piece of it. So yep. uh, he, your thoughts on... Listen, here, one other thought on that. Yeah. Is, I keep looking for, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, Bernie, by the way, is, I, I have no doubt in my mind he's running. Uh, he's yeah, doing everything too. he should be, should be doing right now. He's out there supporting candidates as well as running for re-election, but you know, supporting good progressive candidates all across the country. But I think we may see some new faces emerge. Jay Inslee, uh, out in your area, right, just up the road. Yeah, he's governor of uh, Washington State. I, I, Louise and I have had dinner with Jay. Governor. He's a great, back when he was in Congress, he's a great guy. Very progressive. Great, great governor. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been talking to uh, Eric Garcetti, Mayor of L.A. That's a real, real long shot, but oh, he's yeah. a great guy. Yeah. Uh, Tim, Tim Ryan from Ohio. I mean, there. I know Tim. He's he's a meditator. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. I do know that. He's a good guy. Yeah. He's he's and, he's uh, more on the he's more on the kind of middle of the road Democrat than the progressive side, yeah. but he's a good guy. Yeah. yeah. And I'll tell you one other that uh, I interviewed. I, I think uh, though Tim Ryan is going to run for governor of Ohio. That's my prediction. If he decides to go for uh, higher I, office, I think not I in think this cycle. Yeah, I think he should. I think that'd be great for him as a first step. Yeah. You know, uh, also, keep your eye on Terry McAuliffe. I mean, Terry, you know, Terry may have too many Clinton ties, but Terry did a good job as governor of Virginia and really helped the Democratic Party. Look where the Democratic Democrats are in Virginia now. Um, I, I'd always been he, skeptical of Terry just because he kind of comes across as a, as a salesman, you know? Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, but, but I, I mean, maybe that's a good he, thing. Maybe that's what we need. Trump comes across as a salesman, and he's doing, he, you know. He, the crowd, I interviewed him in front of this crowd, and he wowed them. He was really Terry good. McCall. He was funny. Cool. He was funny. He was passionate. I was impressed. And uh, like you, I was skeptical before, but I just thought if he really goes, he could he could uh, get some traction. Fascinating. Maybe not all the way. Yeah. But it's going to be a wild, wild, wild. Uh, and on the, on the Republican side, Bill, we just have a minute and a half left here. On yeah, the Republican sure. side, what are you expecting? And, and but actually, if we only have a minute and a half left, are there any stories from your book, Bill Press, from the left that you'd like to share? <laughs> no, thank you. Let me just say, uh, Tom, like you, I've had a great run so far. Uh, I call this memoir. It's my memoir so mm-hmm. far, right? I call it Memoir Part One. Right. And uh, I think it's been a fun run, and I've, I think it's a really fun read. And uh, working with some people, like starting with Jerry Brown, you know, going up to Bill Clinton and Hillary, Barack Obama, and then into the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, lots of fun stories, lots of great people, uh, and just encourage people either go to Amazon, you know, or your local bookstore, or to um, my website, BillPressShow.com, uh, uh, and uh, enjoy, enjoy. On the Republican side, listen, I I think that John Kasich is probably going to run, yep. but I think Donald Trump's going to be going to be the nominee. And Democrats who don't think he could get another four years are kidding themselves. We yep. don't think he could get there now. Yep. Uh, he's going to be he's going to be tough because he's. You know, his base and he lies and people believe him. And as long as the economy is doing well. Well, uh, let me add something to that. Yeah, I agree. The economy is the wild card here. Trouble. But but yeah. he has hijacked progressive Democrats position on trade. And that Bingo. is the thing that rings in the heartland. And he's Bingo. doing yeah. it. And, I, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, grit my teeth and say on the air, I support what he's doing. Sure. No. In terms of NAFTA, in terms of TPP, you and I both opposed those, right, when they were yeah. proposed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These were, these were progressive uh, Democratic positions, and Donald Trump hijacked them, and his own party opposes him on it. But I think yeah. that's why he's going to get reelected, and, or, or could get reelected if he doesn't have a good, strong Democrat running against him. Bill, we're, we're hitting a hard break here. I'm sorry. Hey, Bill yeah, Press. Go ahead, Bill. Thank you again. Thanks, thank, you, thank you so much. The book is Bill Press from the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. 
And, uh, of course, available in any bookstore. And BillPressShow.com is Bill's website. Hang on. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can tweet Bill at BP, as in Bill Press, BP Show. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you 10 minutes before the hour. Terry in Mountain View, Hawaii. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, what's going on? I love your show, man. I love Thank it. You. I love it to death. And my, my uh, siblings hate me because of it. Oh, my. <laughs> Oh because I post it. Sorry about I, that, Jerry. All your things on online, Great. and they think I'm the devil. So, oh, okay. But I'm not, but Here outside we are. of that, Here we are. There, there are so many things that you bring up and that I could hit on, but this thing in Israel, that's that's bad. Korea's bad. China's bad. And what uh, Donald Spanky, like you call him, is doing to our government and our standing in the world is just atrocious. I mean, it's so terrible that I'm embarrassed. I'm appalled. To even be called an American because of what's happening. But you know what I'm going to do real quick, Tom? You know, when they had the election in 2016, they, they had a uh, thing on, on uh, uh, MSNBC, I think it was CNN, about the Electoral College being threatened. Mm-hmm. It was only mentioned that one day, and never brought up ever again, that the Electoral College was being threatened. And if we do not change, or if the president does not get on the interference of the Russians in our democracy and our elections, it's going to happen again. It, it, it's going to happen again. And, and not just the Russians, Terry. If, if, if the Russians demonstrated a technique and, uh, to, to mess with our brains on Facebook, there's nothing to stop you know, the, the Saudis, the Israelis, the, the, the Iranians, the, the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, fill in the blanks. Uh, and similarly, if they figured out a way to get inside our voting machines or inside our tabulator computers, there's nothing to stop all those other people from doing that either. And frankly, there's nothing to stop right-wing corporations from doing it. True, so we need true. to lock this stuff down. I mean, it's just that simple. We yeah, go we back to, to paper ballots. They use this rift between Bernie Sanders and Hillary to the hilt. Yeah. That's what destroyed the election. Yeah. Is, is, is because of all that false information. Well, I, I, it's not, it wasn't entirely that, Terry. There's, there's a dump out now, and you can probably search it fairly easily. I got it off, the, as I recall, the Washington Post last week, and I, I went through and I looked at maybe 50 or 60 of them, but they've got all the, the several thousand uh, memes, you know, the little pictures with the slogans and stuff on them that were posted by the, inter- Russian, the Internet Research Bureau, the Russian organization that was, that was apparently hired, apparently by the Russian government, but, you know, we don't know for sure yet. Um, the Internet Research Bureau that placed this stuff on Facebook. And uh, almost none of them had to do with Hillary and Bernie. Most of them had to do with, you know, on the, they would post one talking about how, you know, black people were being killed by white people. And then they post another one talking about, you know, black on white crime is a horrible problem. That kind of thing. It was, it was you know, trying to stir up hatred between groups. And they did the same thing pro-gun, anti-gun. They did the same thing, uh, you know, pro-gay, anti-gay. They, you know, basically any fissure... In, in America that could be cracked open and amplified is what happened. And, yes. you know, but which, by the way, is not only, I mean, you know, they may have done that, but the Republican Party has been doing this forever. Oh, amen on that. So, so <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, it's a, it's a real concern to me. And I think that we need to, we need to get our, our media tightened up and we need to get, and, and, and by that, I mean, just more transparent and honest. Terry, thank you for the call. And we also need to get the, uh, uh, you know, our whole, our entire voting system's tightened up. Pat in Bentonville, Arkansas. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind? Yeah, let me get you off speaker here. One. Yeah, uh, talking about Senator Sanders. Yeah. You're from Michigan. Do you remember Senator Phil Hart? I do. Uh, he was called the conscience of the U.S. Senate. Yep. Are you old enough to remember FDR? No, no, I was born in 51. FDR died in 45. Yeah, the, the point is this. At 46. When the, when the Democratic Party amends its ways and opens its cold-hearted hands to the love of people like Senator Sanders, then Senator Sanders should join them. Look at the plank and the platform of the present Democratic Party. I will say, I gritted my teeth and closed my eyes and held my nose and voted for Senator for Hillary Clinton. There's no way in God's earth I could vote for what's in there. I we did vote for a Democrat. He's probably in your time. General Dwight D. Eisenhower. What was the Remember question? Remember him? Yeah, I do. Okay, that was the last good Republican 
He was the last honest Republican, and he was the last Republican who actually was elected in a clean election where he, where the, where the guy running didn't commit treason in order to become president. Pat, I, I want to get another caller in here before the end of the show, but thanks for the call, Sherry in Denver. Hey, Sherry, what's on your mind? Hi. Yeah, um, I was typing out an email, and my husband came in and told me that you were on the air and what had happened. And the funny part about my email was. I had just written about the Palestinians on the Strip Mm -hmm. and had mentioned, you know, how many had been killed before and how many had been wounded, and also that they were shooting in the backs last week to make sure that they weren't going to be able to walk and have medical problems the rest of their lives and what they had done today. And the, the thing I want to say to that is I'm Jewish. I was raised in a conservative home. My mother was from Europe and my father was Russian. And I went and mentioned in the email that the history of the Jewish people in the world and the torture and the killings that had been caught, been given to them and the way they were treated, less than second-class citizens, to be treating people this way is a disgrace to the Jewish people and to the Israelis. I think that that is the perspective that much of the world is taking. And as much as Israel tries to spin this, I saw a guy on MSNBC this weekend saying, oh, you know, Hamas is, or Hezbollah is bragging about how they're sending children to, to be shot at. Well, why are you shooting at them? I mean, if they're sending children, it's like... But that isn't ignore- true. Hamas isn't doing it. No, I, and it's just a peaceful... Well, I'm saying, and I know you know this, it's yeah. a peaceful march. Yeah. And if... if it wasn't a peaceful march, as I think someone pointed out. There would be more killings on both sides. I agree. Yeah, I, this is this is I think in many ways sort of uh, well we'll see. But I think this may be Israel's Kent State. We'll find out. Sherry, thank you very much for the call, and uh, you know pray for peace in Jerusalem and around the world. Whew. Thanks so much for being with us today. Quite a day. It seems like every day is quite a day now that we've got a crazy man in the White House. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 